0: He escaped Communist Hungary as a youth, built his first house on top of an abandoned raft, and eventually made a dream home for his family in Tuscany. Author Ferenc Matei returns to travel with Rick Steves today to share more on what he suspects is getting
1: in the way of our being truly happy. I think that we have become almost a virtual society. and Everything that we experience is sort of watered down and secondhand. And I think we've lost two things, the calm and the excitement of life, the intensity of life. And Dan Austin's cross-country bike trip inspired him to help young people in developing
0: countries by giving them their own bikes. Dan shares how to become a road trip pilgrim,
2: where making do with less really can give you more. Something magical happens when you don't have a lot of resources. People connect with you in a different way. You're equal to them. Global prescriptions for reconnecting with life. It's just ahead on today's
0: Travel with Rick Steves. What have your travels taught you? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I'll be talking with two very inspiring travelers in the hour ahead. Their stories might make you consider rearranging your priorities, changing your lifestyle, or even planting some garlic. Ference Maté has wrestled with what's really important, and he's written about it in a bestseller called A Reasonable Life. He updates this outlook for surviving the modern age in his latest book. It's called A Real Life. He'll join us in just a bit to advocate for rediscovering the basics of the good life, you know, reconnecting with the people around us. And Dan Austin recounts how he, his brother, and his best friend traveled rough and ready by bike all across the USA on $10 a day. He brings us tips for discovering for yourself the rewards of traveling close to the ground. Let's start today's show by checking in with listeners who share tales of adapting to German culture. Tell us what your travels have taught you at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Jennifer's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Jennifer, thanks for your call.
3: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, do you have some stories about um, struggling to be smooth and together in Germany?
3: Yes. My husband and I decided to stop by this gorgeous bakery, beautiful pastries and whatnot. My husband went to order one, And he said, I would like one of those. And he used his index finger indicating number one. And the woman behind the counter looked completely offended, and her face was just mortifying. We couldn't understand as to what had happened, but we asked again. And she uh, responded, oh, you like one? But she used her thumb. So later on our adventure in Germany, we were talking with this couple and we're like, we don't understand what happened. And in essence, doing the number one with the index finger is equal to the American version of flipping someone off with the bird in the middle finger. So
0: Oh no. So <laughs> so next time I suppose you should use your middle finger when ordering one. Or the thumb, Or rather. the thumb, that's better. Hey, you know, that reminds me of a, of a related faux pas. When I was a kid, I remember we, I was traveling with my parents, and we were in Germany, and we ordered a schnitzel or something holding up one finger, our index finger, mm-hmm. and Germans just assume that's two because you always start counting with your thumb.
3: Thumb ah. would be one, thumb
0: and index finger is two, so if you held up your index finger, they're likely to think you mean you want two of something.
3: Clever. So
0: you could actually insult them and get double of what you wanted at the same yes.
3: time. Yes. We could have have two pastries <laughs> instead of
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> two pastries thrown at your face.
3: <laughs> well, Jennifer,
0: you learned and you've shared it. So uh, no more flipping people off innocently in Germany, okay?
3: Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks
0: for your story. Donna's on the phone in Dallas. Hi, Donna. Oh,
3: thank you for speaking to me, Ruth.
0: Yeah, do you have a lesson you've learned overseas?
3: When I was in college, my roommate and I... Um, went to Salzburg for a semester, and we were trying to speak German, and we went to a big beer hall where we were supposed to meet some friends, and uh, we were walking around. When everyone talked to us, we kept saying, Wir suchen Freund, Wir suchen Freund, which we thought meant, we're looking for our friend, and we were actually saying,
1: we're looking for a friend. So everyone kept saying, we'll be your friend, we'll be your friend.
0: You know, that's a pretty good line. If you don't know much German, I'm looking for a friend.
3: We were brand new over there at the time.
0: So did you get a friend?
3: Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we could have gotten some <laughs> eventually.
0: And did he, you found your friend eventually? Yes. And how was the rest of
3: your trip? Oh, it was wonderful. We had another incident where we were chased by police. We thought it was just a car coming towards us with lights shining and men yelling, and they chased us towards the house we were living in, and when we jumped over the fence and got inside, we found out that we had been walking across the construction site for the new opera hall, and they thought we were stealing building material.
0: Oh, no, and they, the police chased you all the way back to your house? Yes. You thought these were dangerous people chasing you?
3: We thought so. We oh. didn't know what we were doing chasing
0: us. Well, you could have just said, uh, uh, Wir suchen ein Freund. We could have, yes. <laughs> All right. Hey, well, it's, you survived your faux pas, and I think you had a good trip to boot, so that's great. Thanks for your call. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're screwing up together in Germany, and it's kind of fun. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Mary in St. Louis emails us, and she tells a story of an education she got on her German trip. Mary writes, My modest sister visited a German spa with some friends. She was embarrassed to see people of all ages and body types walking around naked and was intimidated when she realized she was expected to leave her bathing suit behind when using the spa facilities. She was mortified when the attendant, a cranky, wrinkled lady with no teeth, ran after her screaming, Trocken! Trocken! Her knowledge of German language was limited, and she had no idea why she was being singled out naked in front of God and everyone. Turns out it is mandatory to shower before entering the spa, and she was trocken. That means dry much to the disdain of the snarling attendant. Boy, if you want to feel awkward, if you're not used to running around naked with a bunch of people who are very good at relaxing with attendants who are very good at keeping everybody in line, go to a spa sometime in Germany. Jeff's on the line in Easton, Maryland. Jeff, thanks for your call.
3: I had called uh, to talk about my son, who had been in Germany during the summer of his junior year in high school. It's part of an exchange program, He was with his host family on the Fourth of July, and his host mother made a sandwich and some picnic items for he and some of his friends to take to a local park. During the day, he ate some of the sandwich, but didn't finish everything, and when he came home that evening, he disposed of it, thinking that it uh, probably had spoiled. Later on, his host mother took him aside and said she'd retrieved what was left of the sandwich. and that they never threw anything away because they'd learned during and just after the war how important food was and that they would have starved had it not been for the American soldiers and the relief programs and ever since they've been extremely frugal with the use of food and resources. So given this lesson that he learned both about history and culture, he later had the opportunity to come back during his junior year in college and study at a German university. We connected with them and they demonstrated through their generosity that that faux pas had not only uh, not created a problem in their relationship, but it actually strengthened the relationship between them. And they subsequently loaned him a bicycle, which when stolen, they loaned him another he subsequently spent his vacation times with them during that year learning i think some valuable lessons about german culture and the experience of germans that had gone through the war and the aftermath of the war
0: well you know that's a very good testimony to the value of foreign study programs isn't it it's more it really than is. it's more than just picking up some history or some language skills they learn who we are and we learn who they are and in the case of an american in germany We get a little sense of what it must have been like for those people to live through that war and and the hunger of the cold winters when they were uh, depending on allies to keep them out of starvation.
3: Yes, his host family, we subsequently had a chance to spend some time with them on several occasions. And it's really amazing how appreciative and sensitive they were to the American soldiers and the relief program after the war. And it was really a very valuable lesson for my son to learn.
0: You know, this just reminds me so much of my friend Herr Jung, who is a friend of mine on the Rhine River. I, I just pulled this out of a, a journal that I had written, but he's referring to the same years that you're talking about in Germany after mm-hmm. the war. He writes, The years after the war were hungry years. He said, I would wake in the middle of the night and search the cupboards. There was no fat, no bread, no nothing. I licked spilled grain from the cupboard. We had friends from New York, and they sent coffee, which we would trade with farmers for grain. For this I have always been thankful. Now when I think of what the Nazis did to Germany, I remember a fine soup cooked by 30 people can be spoiled by one man with a handful of salt. So he has this notion that the Americans were the compassionate ones and sent in these care packages that got him through those difficult times.
3: Yeah, The the friends that we have in Germany, I think, feel exactly the same way. And as, as you say, it's hard for us to imagine that kind of deprivation and suffering.
0: Well, that's great that your son has that as a lasting souvenir and lesson from his time over there. Jeff, thanks for your call.
3: All right, Rick. Good talking with you. You too.
0: One of the words a lot of Americans know in German is dummkopf, dumbhead. And a lot of times when I'm traveling, I feel like a dumbhead because I'm in Germany. I don't speak the language, and Germans know what they're doing, and I don't get it right. And it's okay. That's the fun thing about travel. We're all beginners over there. It's like we're in kindergarten, and we're learning new tricks. You know, the good news is we're all in the same traveler's school of hard knocks, and it's okay to compare notes. That's what we're doing today. We're comparing notes. We're comparing faux pas. You can call us anytime at 877-333-7425, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Rick is on the line in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hi, Rick. Hello, hello. What have you learned from your uh, mistakes in understanding the cultures and so on?
4: My wife and I were traveling uh, in Germany about a year ago, and We were jumping from train to train, and uh, at one point we felt very lucky we could get on the first car. We noticed a little sign that was in the window, and I don't remember the exact word, but like Rorschach or something, Mm -hmm. or or Rauch something, which means smoke. So my poor German uh, understanding at the time, I thought it meant no smoking. So we got on the car, and uh, nobody else was smoking, and I don't smoke, and my wife didn't. And I thought nothing of it until the uh, conductor came by and checked all the tickets. And it turns out we were on the wrong car.
0: How can we actually that be? Had, to
4: get our, we had to take our luggage off and get back onto another car further down the train.
0: Well, the sign said no smoking. Why did that matter about the destination?
4: It turns out it didn't really say don't smoke. It was the name of the city that that particular car was going to go What we didn't understand, like in the U.S., trains go from city to
2: city,
4: but in Europe, cars go from city to city, and they'll split a train up in the middle, and one car will go to one city, and one will go to another. That's
0: that's a very important tip, Rick. I've noticed that in my own experience. You can be on a train that's just jam-packed and you can walk through six or seven cars looking for a place to sit and all of a sudden there's an empty car and you go, oh man, this is too good to be true and you sit down in that car and you've got to realize this car is likely going someplace else where nobody wants to go and it'll uh, break off at the next stop and you could be heading on your way to uh, no smoking
4: Yes, and... Uh, so there's a
0: town that's Rauken would be the German word for no smoking Well, I know that now <laughs> Yeah, So there's a, somewhere in Germany there's a town that, that looks a lot like that, huh? Yes, yes, there is. Another point of confusion for travelers in Germany is Ausfahrt. Ausfahrt is the German word for exit. Yes. And uh, you know that from driving in Germany and a lot of people joke that uh, all exits lead to a little town called Ausfahrt. That's right. That's but that's right. not, that's not the case at all. All right. Hey, well, thanks for your lesson.
4: You're very welcome.
0: All right. Happy travels. Bye. If I like
4: that you're here and I like that you're here Happy New Year, my dear.
2: So much. For the sun will rise and the moon will set And you learn how to settle for what you get
1: It'll all
3: gone if we're here or not So who cares, so what? So who cares, so
0: what? Ference Maté tells us how to fix your overstressed life using your own two hands. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. seems like the first thing someone says when you meet him and you say, how are you, they say, I'm so busy. It's as if it's some sort of badge of honor. All this rushing around is part of our everyday routines, and it's even how we Americans all too often spend our very brief vacations. But what price do we pay for all this busyness? That's what Ferenc Maté has been asking. Now, don't get me wrong, he's been pretty busy, too. After fleeing communist Hungary as a youth following the failed revolution back in 1956, He went on to build and restore his own boats and homes, and that includes a 13th-century friary, which he turned into his dream house in Tuscany. That's where he grows grapes now for his own Brunello wines. He's also written more than a dozen books. His latest is a wake-up call to rediscover the roots of our happiness and take control of our days. It's called A Real Life, and it'll be out shortly in paperback. Ferenc, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks for inviting me. A real life. A, A real life as opposed to what? I think that we have become almost a virtual society. And everything that we experience is sort of watered down and secondhand. And I think we've lost two things, the calm and the excitement of life, the intensity of life. And I don't think that you can restore it no matter how many video games or gadgets you have. You cannot recapture the the passion that you get out of a relationship between people, a relationship of man to earth, of man to family or to friendships. And these things, I'm not saying we've lost them completely, but we are certainly on our way, and I think it's getting worse and worse every day. I think we're replacing basic joys in life with a really mediocre substitute.
0: Well, a lot of people would go to a screen or some
1: sort of digital fantasy in order to have (laughs) intensity.
0: I mean, you're saying we've lost intensity because we've been sucked into that kind of uh, digital intensity? Rick, I think
1: if you look at the average person or every child doing a video game or watching television, and you can see the the brain almost 99% shut down. I don't think there's any emotion involved there. Maybe a little anxiety, like an inner panic, that discomfort that you get from playing these games, but Mm -hmm. there's not this passion and satisfaction that you get out of something something real that you actually do with your own hands or experience with your own heart and soul, you know, that comes with another human being.
0: I think a lot of people recognize this problem and this challenge. In fact, the topic's almost a cliché. How has your life experience given you something different to share in your book, A Real Life?
1: The two things moved me to Italy, first of all. I was traveling all over the world and looking for a place to settle down. Lived in New York for years, lived in Paris, lived in Rome. And uh, one day, we're coming out of uh, the Amalfi Coast. You know what the road is like. Two buses meet, everybody stops, right? Talk so about th- intensity, that <laughs> road. Whoa. I sort of pulled over to the side trying to let the traffic by, but I couldn't because I was too much in the middle. Cabby behind me jumps out of the car, slams the door, and I thought, he's going to come and kill me with a wrench. And he instead took a deep breath and went, oh, sole mio. <laughs> I thought, these guys know how to live. <laughs> I thought, this is perfect.
0: You know, I've seen that in traffic jams in Italy. People, they, they just pull over,
1: they pull out their little card table and crack <laughs> open a bottle of Chianti, <laughs> exactly. and they say, well, I guess we'll have our picnic here. <laughs> perfect. Song. One of the first phrases I learned when I moved to Tuscany was, piano, piano con calma, which means slowly, slowly, calmly. You know, and piano, it's true. it's always time to sit around, talk to each other, have a glass of wine. So you're well, talking about
0: uh, an Italian sort of il, il dolce far niente, isn't it? Uh, the sweetness that's a good, that's of doing nothing. You yeah. know? Uh, this sort of sensibility, interweaving that here in our, our lives in a more high-strung, high-powered kind of existence. There's a lot of trade-offs there. How, how can you balance the benefits of modern life and all of the, you know, we can fly to Tuscany for two weeks just for a vacation. You couldn't do that without having True. a little
1: bit of that intensity. True, but, you know, I'll tell you one thing. I've just spent some time in, on a little island or a community of a little island near Vancouver. And the interchange between people who live on the docks and live in a little house around the docks, and it's not a rich community, nothing can replace that little simple conversations yeah. that you meet with a fisherman or some guy hanging out a trap off a dock. That 10 or 15 minutes of exchange is so unforgettable that you, it cannot replace no matter how much money you spend on any kind of gadgets. And I think we're overwhelmed by this idea that the more gadgets we have, the more material things we have, the happier we have. I love this line in your book where you say, living with our gadgets, lonely
0: in vast crowds. I mean, that really <laughs> nails it. And, and it relates to a sort of a growing depression industry in our society as well, doesn't it?
1: We have like two biggest things you go to drugs for is the antidepressants and the indigestive pills. I mean, those things shouldn't exist in our lives. Why? If we eat normally, move normally, laugh enough, good heavens, those things just aren't necessary, you know. It sounds almost too simplistic to say those things are not
0: necessary, But you also talked about in your book that the solution involves no hardships. Simply lead better and happier lives. And another quote in your book, your book is just filled with quotes, if only we'd stop trying to be happy, we'd have a pretty good time. Isn't that great? I love that. (laughs) But I mean, the point is, you can be simple and quiet and tuned into the moment
1: if you simply choose to. It's true. We're not talking about some solemn monastic existence. I'm talking about... That we're missing two aspects we're missing calm and excitement okay true excitement true passion true rich experience you know i mean i was telling you i was working on this island for the last just no water no electricity nothing for the last couple of weeks 12 hours a day working like a dog hauling rocks up and down clearing paths trying to get the house in order totally exhausted but it's a great exhaustion because you actually do increase them with your hands you know i drove down from vancouver to seattle It took me an hour and a half and I was dead tired. I didn't do anything; I just sat there. But there was no emotional, there was no physical reward. And I think those two things—the physical and emotional reward—are missing from our lives. We don't do anything simple like cook from scratch, See, or that grow kind of food. Work, that
0: kind of work can energize you, rather, Absolutely. Than, rather than drain oh, you.
1: It, exactly. I'm, I'm telling you, I feel ten years younger two weeks after that kind of work that I did before. You know, and it was just physically exhausting. I probably lost a few pounds, but but I feel reborn, basically. You know?
0: I'm Rick Steves. We're talking with Ferenc Maté, his new book, A Real Life. Ferenc, when you think about your life in Tuscany, I know from looking through those books, it's about growing your own food, making your own wine, fixing your own house. Talk about how all of that experience relates to what you are suggesting or challenging us in a real life. You say disconnect in order to reconnect.
1: We are so reliant on outside sources constantly to look after us, to help us, that we forget the, the enormous pleasures and the, the satisfaction, the fulfillment that you come from doing something yourself, okay? So are that we... is a huge irony, to be so fanatic about being connected that we actually become disconnected. Yeah, I become frightened if to, if we don't, uh, don't connect with some outside source that, that might help us, when if we were self-reliant to some degree, I mean, people used to build their own houses, you know, it's not that difficult cutting two by fours. People used to do their own gardens. They used to grow their own most of their own food for pleasure, you know. Right. Now you go through most of the countryside here and fruit trees aren't pruned, they're abandoned, vegetable gardens are few and far between, uh, more and more so. You
0: kind of comment from your perspective in Tuscany, looking at American society, that you see isolation, depression, and overweight people.
1: It really is a huge, and it's a very noticeable comparison. I'm not saying Italy doesn't have it, because Italy's going right. the same way, it's just that we're behind a few decades, but, you right. know, we're certainly getting to the same point as any other mm-hmm. Western country is. But still, the Italians, the family is a huge thing. The community is enormous. And community, in a fun sort of way, it's not like you're responsible for community watch, that kind of thing. No. You have people bring out the tables, and this neighborhood has a neighborhood party, and, and kids get together or get thrown out to the street so they can play together and know each other. Neighborliness, which is a word I think is completely lost in our vocabulary. I mean, look at our houses, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. We used to have little porches where you sit around and met the neighbors. Now what do you have? Three-car garage. I mean, you basically... Drive from your car, step into your garage. Never see your neighbor for decades. If you live beside somebody, do not even know them. Whereas in Tuscany, we have people from next door to us come in, and we need penicillin injections or something. They'll do it because you know that's what neighbor is for. They, you need help with your truck or your car or your, or your well, garden. Well, sort of the
0: old-fashioned concept of neighborliness. Whereas now we've worked ourselves out of that, where we we aren't reliant on the people next door. No, which is we really pay a for, loss. No, we, we pay, we pay
1: for, it. for some distant professional to do all these services that doesn't involve a human exchange. Tuscany also has, as you know well, the tiny stores where people know you, the butcher knows you, the the baker knows you. And those few minutes of of interaction give you a sense of place, a sense of belonging, and I I think we're losing that. So you've talked about relying on neighbors, working with your hands.
0: From this earthy sort of perspective, you can reevaluate
1: the whole meaning of success. Well, I can only go from experience of the Tuscan people and from my own, okay? I can tell you that no matter what I do, how many books I've written, one of the proudest things I do, and it's a yearly event, I grow garlic. <laughs> I and mean, I tell you, nothing is more thrilling than sticking 100 cloves in the ground and seeing every of them come up, you know? And you feel, my God, I've really done something. And such, such great garlic is all organic, so it's not really strong, but it's totally full of flavors. But then sharing it the with pleasure. somebody. Oh. See, that, that must be the, the That's capper. the biggest thing, you know. You, <laughs> that must be the Your, your friends going for dinner he doesn't mind garlic, dear, it's great, great garlic. <laughs>
0: I've seen that on bruschetta. Oh. I mean, you know, that, the way they just rub that garlic on the and, toast. And fresh olive oil. And, and the olive, olive oil, oil that they know who made that olive oil.
1: And it's the best part of the meal. You can do all the surveys you want, but nothing tastes as good as a tomato just so fresh and still warm with the sun in it that you just pick from and your it, own garden. And, yeah. and it ties, Rick. I mean, I've known it from our neighbors where the grandfather works with the five-year-old granddaughter. She's out there helping in the garden, actually hoeing and doing stuff, and she is thrilled to do it. It's not a chore for them. You know? right. She belongs in a family. She has a, such a sense of place, such a sense yeah. of identity. We're not allowing our kids to have that. Okay? We've, we've lost completely. it. Completely. We've given these anonymous toys, the generic toys that everybody else has. How does that make you feel? How does it bring out your individuality? How does it bring out your creativity or your, your, your passion for seeing the world from your own point of view? You're, you're, we're binding our children's hands, basically, with this stuff. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ferenc Maté. We're talking about a
0: real life. The subtitle of the book Rediscovering the Roots of Our Happiness. Talk about the beauty of working with our hands.
1: Oh. It's ironic because the satisfaction of that is so enormous and I think that uh, it's the biggest gift you can give to your childhood, to yourself is to learn not the physical skills necessarily but the emotional security that gives you to be able to do things and trust yourself to do things yourself. Mm-hmm. When I was 18 I lived in Vancouver. I started university and I had no place to live. And I couldn't afford an apartment, so I, I thought, you know, how can I rectify going to school and not having a place to live? So I found this raft down in the waterfront, about twenty four feet by twelve feet, and I built myself a little house on it, out of plywood and two by fours, and I made sure I designed it so I went to cut the plywood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was hard with a handsaw in those days, you know. Yeah. And for about eight hundred bucks I built this wonderful little place with a kitchen and a bathroom and I used a cement hopper upside down that somebody threw away for a fireplace and everything in the world that you could ask for. From that point on, Rick, I felt so confident in myself for the rest of my life. I was never rich. Maybe I'm doing okay now, but the feeling that you can provide your own shelter gives you a security in other situations. I can walk into New York and feel totally confident in any, any boardroom anywhere because I know that I don't care what you guys think. I can build my own house, man. I can look after myself. See, you know?
0: that confidence is almost subversive in our society, and I think we're taught <laughs> not to have that confidence. Isn't it true? So we're reliant on all of these other people that can... Hijack the service the industry of our lives.
1: exactly. You know, I went to Tuscany with this sort of two by four and plywood knowledge, mm-hmm. and we found this old thirteenth century abandoned monastery. I mean, abandoned. The roof was caving in, the stones were falling apart, the trees are overgrown with brambles, and I had absolutely no qualms of beginning to restore it. Yeah. And I had no knowledge of stonework or oak beams or or old masonry or terracotta roofing, but you just sort of think, hey. I can figure it out somehow along the way, you know. And it was two years of, of absolute hell and paradise alternately every five minutes, you know. But it was the best time of my life. You it's, wouldn't wouldn't trade it, no, for nothing. And you know, even now, I went back looked at the photographs of the original ruin, and for the first year, I almost got sick looking at it. I thought I ever dared to start a project like that. But yet, the passion, the joy of of that stays with you forever. There's don't, no, you're right. There's no other gift like that. Do you look at people sometimes and say?
0: why don't you just step out and make it happen? I mean, because you've done that. I mean, you haven't done it because your parents were rich. You've done it because you just had the confidence to build a raft and make a little
1: house on it or to go to Italy and well, do it. Well, we this. escaped from Hungary after a revolution, and the three of us, my mother and her boyfriend and I, had $6 among us and, right. and the clothes on our backs. So, you know, we, were, we were anti-rich. <laughs> and, and the sense of that, that you were happy when you were poor, and no matter what happens, whatever you lose you might regain that happiness. You know, I traveled in Mexico for six months, Mexico, Guatemala, Costa Rica, with my wife 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we had this old Volkswagen camper. Best time of our lives. Yeah. Best time of our oh, lives. Oh, my you very know? best trip was when I was a, sort of a scavenger on the streets of Europe also, you know? Really. I mean, I just, those are the rich experiences. <laughs> well, look at the great toy we have, GPS. You are robbing yourself of the world's best encounters, getting lost, meeting people that you never planned to meet, seeing things in places nobody ever saw because you're on the wrong road. It's the life's greatest joy, you know? We're down in Puglia, and there were two choices on the map, both green roads on the map, one along the coast, one internally. And we asked in a, a little town somebody, I said, Could you tell us which is the more beautiful road? He started looking at the map. Huh. Within two minutes, there were six people arguing, No, ma che, scene di, c'ma w- non è vero. I wouldn't send my mother in law on that ugly road. <laughs> this was probably 15 years ago, and I have never laughed so hard in my life. <laughs> Would never happen with a GPS, you know? <laughs> no. I'm, I'm with you there for sure. I'm Rick Steves. This
0: is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ferenc Mate, his book, A Real Life. But once I started getting into this book, it finished sentences that I had been trying to write for hmm. me as far as lifestyle goes and so on. I mean, you oh, wrote, nice um, you wrote, for instance, joining a group that meets just once a month produces the same happiness increase as doubling your income. Uh, Isn't
1: it astounding? That is, I didn't make that up. That was, a, that was from a, a study. You know? I,
0: I thought of a few groups that I'm with and, and what joy they bring me as opposed to all the scrambles I do to make my business work and so on. And and that really is, if you're looking for a return, a place for return. But that thought made me think about living in Tuscany where life is more like
1: a group. In little ways every day. You know. The sense of belonging is so strong in Tuscany. And we can learn from that. Look at the average Tuscan. Look how happy they are. Look how happy they are to engage you in
0: conversation. There's a piazza,
1: and that's where people go to
0: hang out before dinner, after dinner. The public land
1: is everything. I mean, there's so much public gathering space. Emerson said that. You know, the most essential thing for a democracy is a, a public gathering place where people can exchange ideas, air views, meet their neighbors create a society. Where do we have that? The mall? is that. I mean, How can you compare that to anything where, where all you do is encourage to buy among massive strangers, you know? And it's easy to return to... Look at Edmunds where you are. There's tiny stores where you can easily support them and easily get to know the people who put their hearts and soul into the, their little stores. And it's their life. It's not just a franchise with them. It's that, you know, they create, they invent everything about the store. That whole Piazza idea it
0: even gets beyond the physical Piazza. In Europe or in other societies, they would take time off when they have children they will have many generations together around the table um seniors stay at home they don't put them off in a in a senior home
1: and it's important for the children and the grandparents i mean the grandparents feel fulfilled they're not, they're not sitting around trying to figure out how to pass their last years they're such essential needed part of the family they're they're probably the most essential they're the most stable the most wise the calmest of the whole group and, that's and what, the amount of love they can pour onto their grandchildren is just almost limitless
0: Ferenc, here in suburban America, with our nine-to-five jobs and a mortgage to pay off and kids to get through school and so on, you know, you and I have been talking about these highfalutin ideas. Yeah, go, go build a boat and live on it. Well, some people can't. What are some actual practical things people can do to live what you would call the title of your book, a real life?
1: Rick, I would start with the simplest thing of all, cook a real meal. Get some raw materials, even if you don't grow it yourself, and cook a real meal. And there's a great Tuscan cookbook that I read once with no quantities Figure out what you want, how much you want to put in. You can think about it. It's not. You don't need to measure everything exactly. Try it. The world's not going to end. Do something for yourself. Plant a vegetable garden. It's 10 times more rewarding, as I told you, than anything else you can think of. Fix your own house. Do something simple. You build your kid a toy. You know, I built my kid a birdhouse and a couple odds and ends. And I still remember that, and he still treasures it. My grandfather built me a little castle when I was a kid and with wooden soldiers. And it was the most precious thing that I ever had and he was thrilled to make it and I was thrilled to get it. Those little things are easy to do. It doesn't take any it doesn't take any gear, it doesn't take knowledge, just follow your heart and your soul and your hands are much smarter than you think you are. <laughs> so it's probably
0: maintain maintain your freedom and your independence when it comes to defining happiness and success because yeah. if you don't somebody just, else will define it for you it's so you, simple and then follow your it.
1: heart and you know I would just live life as if your life depended on it you know to do it like we really mean it you know every day should be passionate if you're not happy doing something don't do it do something else much more simple and much more meaningful and it really works I promise you
0: well Ferenc Mate reading your books and especially your newest book of real life you speak from real experience thank you so much and,
1: and best wishes thanks for having me it's really fun and it's
3: true
0: Ference Mate's website is ferencmate.com. His name's spelled F-E-R-E-N-C-M-A-T-E. You'll find a link, plus more from Ference in the radio archives at ricksteves.com. Up next, we'll see how to put these ideals into practice on the road by learning how to become what Dan Austin calls a road trip pilgrim. It's travel with Rick Steves. I love it when people travel with purpose, especially when getting out of your everyday comfort zone pays off in ways you couldn't have imagined. Filmmaker Dan Austin's life is a good example. He chronicles a life-changing bike trip across the U.S. in his book and documentary called True Fans, and he's since written a fun little guide to traveling close to the Earth. It's called The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Roadtrippilgrim.com tells more about it. Dan's now leading a nonprofit called the 88 Bikes Foundation, which brings joy and bicycles to young people in the developing world. Details on that are at 88bikes.org. Dan Austin joins us today, and he has a fascinating story. And Dan, rather than me explain it all, tell us uh, just
2: in a brief overview where your travels started and where they led you. Sure, sure. So a few years ago, my brother and best friend and I biked across America. We wanted to do it right. We wanted to really see our country and get to know it. We went on mountain bikes. We towed everything we had in the Ark of the Covenant, this bike trailer we pulled behind our bikes. We uh, didn't shower for weeks. We camped on golf courses, the tops of mountains. Uh, we had we had a great time and got to the Basketball Hall of Fame at the, at the end of the journey. Uh, that was kind of the, the beginning of this meaningful travel, this idea of, of going on pilgrimages, or what I call in, in my second book the road trip pilgrimage, which kind of has sort of a, you know, a dirtbag sort of mentality to it, I guess, as well. And then that led you to an organization that you've started? Yeah. So we were going to do a bike ride through Cambodia several years after that. Actually, 10 years after we biked across America. And we wanted to give our bikes away at the end of the ride to two lucky kids. This was in Cambodia. And we found an orphanage in Phnom Penh, but we realized two weeks before we left that there were 88 kids at the orphanage, which meant that two kids would have a great day and 86 kids would have kind of a lousy day, and we didn't want that to happen. So we launched a fundraiser, and within just four days, we had all the money we needed to buy bikes for all the kids. And we went to Cambodia, the kids got the bikes. It was this incredible, what we call, moment of happy. And my brother and I realized right then that we wanted to do this for, for years wow. to come. Wow,
0: what a cool, inspirational story. Now, first of all, the bike trip that you, you took that sort of kicked off this amazing sort of passion you have now, it was from west coast to east coast?
2: Yeah, yeah, we started off in Venice Beach right, in Los Angeles, over the top of San Bernardino Mountains, across the Mojave, Rockies, and ended up D.C., up the coast to Boston. And what was your budget per day for that trip? 10 bucks a day. 10 bucks a day. Wow.
0: I've got this book I'm holding of yours, The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. And at the end of the book, sort of in the appendix or something, you've got this Oath of the Road Trip Pilgrim, and it's got little blanks you fill in. So I filled this in, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it now. And this is sort of my oath here. I, Rick Steves, am going to ignore anything that gets in the way of taking that epic pilgrimage I've been meaning to take across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railway. That's nice, what. nice. I'm going to put aside my need for good coffee and the Internet <laughs> for two weeks. So i get got to fill that in, how long I'm going to go, what I'm going to do mm-hmm. without, and get going. I'm not going to be discouraged by the ego traveler. In fact, my pilgrimage has never been done before because I am doing it. So even though I may walk a path worn by thousands, it'll be a wholly unique and epic quest. By turning the page... I take the oath to make this thing happen, to never compare, and to have the time of my life. I, Rick Steves, take the oath and become the road trip pilgrim. (laughs) It's a a declaration. It's an empowerment.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think travel at its best is when you go because you really want to, because there's something about that particular journey that cues into who you are and to seeking a greater sense for your own identity. and. Like it says in the oath, there, you know, it could be a path tried by thousands. It could be a. Uh, but I know, like could... that. It's the first time it's ever been done. Because exactly. It's me, and I'm unique. And that was great, by the way. That was a very nice, uh, very <laughs> nice uh, utilization of the, of the oath. I love that. That's well, fantastic. Uh, this
0: is not just a radio interview. This is something I'm taken to heart. I think this is very <laughs> cool. I'm not going to be discouraged by the ego traveler. What what is that line supposed to mean?
2: Well, I, I think that you know, there's a temptation sometimes in travel to want to just hit as many possible places as you can, Ah, to checklist. And, you know, we all want to see everything, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's all interesting. But I think that you can get distracted by having a deeper sense of travel and self if you just checklist it instead of just spending a little time and going because you want to and embracing wherever you are and whatever you find and seeing the essence of that. Great travel writers from
0: Robert Louis Stevenson to Carl Franz have said that sort of philosophical thing. Wherever you go, there you
2: are. Exactly. When we finally got to the East Coast, you know, it was... It was wonderful to hit the, the Atlantic Ocean, but it was it was really all those adventures that came in between that made the journey. Uh, it's pretty rough living.
0: I mean, $10 a day, this is serious stuff. And I really think there's an interesting psychological barrier or, or some kind of barrier put between you and the experience you envision if you have too much money.
2: I completely agree. And, you know, if, if we were to do this now, we'd probably have a little, a few more resources. You know, we'd probably have a, right. a hotel here and there. But when you are forced to, you know, to camp out, to really embrace the communities you're in something happens you know and, and and it was this way when i biked through mexico i biked down the gulf coast of mexico as well and and you know something magical happens when you don't have a lot of resources when you just embrace the journey people connect with you in a different way you're equal to them there's not this you know this yeah. inequality and and uh I don't know, something about just going with, with limited resources was probably the best thing about that trip. You know, one thing good about going with limited resources is you meet the crazies. For sure. You meet the crazies, and, and you also meet sort of guru people that you can learn from. Well, you know, you meet the full spectrum of humanity. You kind of bring out the guru, the crazy, the true fan, the, the hero in in everybody. It's like something about that approach strips off the layers so that, you know, everyone becomes a little more true, a little more of their true essence, you know? Do you talk to people that a lot of other people would sort of cross
0: the road not to talk to?
2: Well, I, I think they often come and talk to us. So That's you become a crazy yourself. <laughs>
0: Probably so.
2: <laughs> Part of the family. Well, when you haven't taken a shower for two weeks or a bath for two weeks. Well, I remember I was on my first, you know, longer bike trip across Colorado back when I was in, just out of high school. And there was a, a guy who would obviously been traveling for a lot. And I was riding my bike out of town. And he was sitting by the roadside. And we kind of exchanged this glance. And it was like, you know, the, the glance of the wonder. And that was the first time I realized that when oh. you're on the road like that, you're kind of just embracing the elements whatever else. You, you, you have this bond with those folks. It's the great everybody. equalizer being on yeah. the
0: road with no money and you know it's the same thing when you think of the famous pilgrimage probably the, the ultimate most famous pilgrimage the community santiago mm. there's two kinds of pilgrims there's pilgrims that are really in the elements and there's pilgrims that you know have somebody to carry their bags
2: and stay in nice hotels exactly and, and that's a perfect example of you know what we brought up earlier the idea of uh i mean there is a path that's been worn by you know millions and uh, yet your journey is the first one if you were to do it this is travel with rick steves we're talking with dan austin And Dan
0: wrote a book called True Fans about his bike ride across the United States from California to the Basketball Hall of Fame in where? Springfield, Mass. That was the the end. Massachusetts. So the whole country wrote a book called True Fans and your book, The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. It's really a guidebook. You know, you you read through this book and you realize, okay, packing. If you're a, a pilgrim, you got all of your stuff on your back generally. You want to pack light, but there's certain things that you do want to bring along because you're
2: a pilgrim. Talk about books that you would read on the road. Oh, man. Well, you know, the books that we read going across America remain, you know, stenciled into us as part of that journey. I I remember finishing Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey on a pit toilet beside the San Miguel River in Colorado. I remember that day distinctly and coming out of that going, dang, that was a good book. Because <laughs> where you read a great book really has an impact on how great the book is, Well, I we think. We just crossed the desert, you know, Ab- Abbey's country. And, you know, we just crossed into Colorado and, you know, coming out and seeing the stars. And my friends are at the picnic table with the camp stove. And uh, something about that image, uh, I have nothing to do with the pit toilet, but, you know, I mean, you, uh-huh. you, got, you, know, that's, you have time to read. So. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I remember that distinctly. And, of course, my friend Clint read Huck Finn. How could you bike across the plains and cross the Mississippi River and not read something from Twain? Kerouac, you I definitely on the road. We read on the road when right. we were there. Absolutely dharma bums. Yeah, yeah, read it
0: on the road. Read it with a stubble. Read it after having eaten some sludge. Tell us about <laughs> cuisine. High cuisine <laughs> on the road.
2: What's sludge? Well, when you're broke, you know you you improvise. You know our trusty camp stove fired up a couple times a day at least, and we made this sludge concoction. Pasta packets, in noodle soup, anything we could find, potatoes, cabbage. We tossed a whole cabbage in one time. Just the whole thing and let it stew. And then you kind of mix it around. It congeals. The water boils off, and you have this sludgy pasta mix. It's great, high on carbs. Powers you down the road the next day. In the morning, it's congealed together, what we call sludge cake. You slice it into chunks, and you eat it, and you're on your way. It's like the first power bar. You eat it cold, or you heat it up. No, we ate it cold. You <laughs> ate it cold. We had to save gas. We had a bunch
0: of it. That is very hardcore. What, and you even talk about getting free food from, like, leftovers from restaurants and stuff. What are some tips on just, if you're on the road and you don't have any money, where will you find some free food?
2: Well, the great thing about it is that, you know, folks want to encourage your journey, you right. know. They see you rolling on your bikes. They're uh, probably envious a little bit. Oh, I think so. I yeah. I, I think that maybe envious, but also hopefully inspired, you know. I'm envious and inspired by,
0: my kids were slumming around South America like I did when I was a teenager. And I think back on my Europe Through the Gutter trip, you know. And yeah. I, I wouldn't do it now because, I don't know, I'm just, more careful and i I need Mm -hmm. a few more comforts but we can still do it i mean people of all ages and all budgets can
2: still have what you're talking about becoming a road pilgrim certainly and you don't have to go on a, a budget of 10 bucks a day you can stay in nice little guest houses i think the whole thing is though to seek for that authenticity to seek for the connection with people and yeah to maybe push the comfort zone a little bit camp out once in a while ride your bike okay talk then about not bathing (laughs) <laughs> you get used to it.
0: For me, I'm really, I got to wash my hair every morning, our system. It's, it's just a weird day. And I went for three or four days in Europe without washing my hair. It was actually kind of a cool experience. You went like two weeks or something, you said. We
2: did like three and a half going and across America. Three and a half America. weeks?
0: Yeah, yeah. And you're not just like sitting around
2: in a library reading. You're biking and sweating. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. So
0: you got grimy in three and a half weeks.
2: We did. But, you know, the great thing about being on the road is that every lake, river, stream, hot spring, swimming hole, we were in. You know? So, I mean, okay, we did not shower for three and a half weeks. Oh, okay, but you were jumping in Oh, lakes absolutely. Oh, oh, good. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. We were on a bus once from...
0: Istanbul to Tehran Mm. it's like a four-day bus ride and the bus driver got was like our mother and he would stop in the middle of Norway say everybody into the river and I I just (laughs) I just can't imagine that in a bus in the United States but it's kind of nice just to be in the elements when you want to jump in and and get clean Uh, I think it's a huge part of the travel absolutely talk about camping free you're biking across the United States $10 a day you'd rather spend it on food than a roof over your head
2: yeah I mean as you well know lodging tends to be the biggest expense for any traveler if you can eliminate that expense, you suddenly have you know greatly amplified your, your budget. Right. So you know, town parks are great. Small towns are fascinated by somebody rolling through on their bike. They'll love you. We, you know, one morning we were in Nebraska, big storm hit. The next morning, this guy walked across the street with coffee for us. Said, "Well, I just wanted to see if the storm didn't kill you." <laughs> you know, <so. laughs> you are know, right. In a small town, I mean, you guys are you're you're
0: not thugs. You're obviously you you know idealistic uh, people out there <laughs> biking around, and you're not you're not dangerous. You don't threaten
2: people. So you can just throw out your sleeping bag in a in a park. Absolutely. We were only kicked out of one park going across America where the cop or you know whoever did not give us another option. Only one time. And then we were taken in by there was a church that's down the street. So. so you can sleep in churches. Sleep at churches. That's great. That happened many many times. They'll take great care of you. Any denomination. There's a little list in the book <laughs> of the Well, are
0: denominations different. I mean, if you're well, let's say you're coming into a town and there's a Catholic church and a Methodist church and a Lutheran church. You just take anyone or do probably you probably go with the Methodist. Go with the
2: Methodist. Yeah. yeah Lutheran would be okay. Catholic, yeah, would be okay too. But probably not <laughs> quite I mean look, I'm just talking from experience. Probably not quite as accommodating, but I'd go with the Methodist, yeah. You just find a nice guy and tell him you're in a jam. Is there any way I can crash here? Y- yeah, or unless it's late, you just, just uh, throw it. out the bags, you know, and they'll find you in the morning. I've done that in Greece and it works very nicely. Absolutely. I mean the doors open and small town. Golf courses? Golf courses are, are very comfortable you got to get in after it's dark. You don't want to get kicked off the golf course, and the, and the sprinklers can be, can oh, be tough. Oh, what
0: a rude awakening, because they probably yeah. run the
2: sprinklers before the uh, first tee time. Right. So what you have to do is find the sprinklers beforehand. Make sure you kind of secure yeah. the campsite. Yeah. That's a couple little diagrams in the book on how to do that. Right. Yeah. Sometimes the sprinklers are you know, below the surface, which makes it difficult.
0: Oh, is that what that diagram is? You're, you're overriding the sprinkler for
2: your zone? Well, you, you, know, you can use bungee cords to kind of like wrap <laughs> them up so they shoot off in one direction. That's yeah, actually stopping the sprinkler from getting you wet. Um, that's correct, yeah. You know, the, the worst ones are what we call these <laughs> robo-heads, which, which are, you know, below the surface and they pop up. The, the pot, the sludge pot works great. We pop it down at the top, we strap it down with bungee cords with stakes. So You ent- you saw that dangerous
0: sprinkler right there thinking, 6 a.m., this is bad news. Oh, yeah. You talked about sleeping in cemeteries. Yeah, yeah, cemeteries are peaceful. I think the greatest thing must be just sleeping on a mountaintop, literally on a
2: mountaintop. Absolutely. You know, you wake up and you see the mist swirling, you see the sunrise, you see the cascade of mountains just going on and on and on. You see the ocean far below sometimes. It's it's a beautiful experience, especially when you got there at night and you didn't know what your surroundings were going to look like and then you know you wake up and it's that's sort of
0: theatrical tour guiding is to arrive after dark so you don't know Mm -hmm. what is going to confront you in the morning whoa (laughs) and then you're thankful you're not in a hotel you're a road pilgrim yeah precisely precisely I'm Rick Steves this is Travel with Rick Steves we're talking with Dan Austin about road trip pilgrims and he's written a couple of just fascinating books True Fans is his story about biking across the United States and uh, Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide is exactly that Dan, this is so fascinating how you you accidentally stumbled onto this opportunity to see what bikes can do to kids in a small village. Tell us about that
2: foundation. So 88 Bikes endows ashrams, villages, centers, schools, throughout the developing world with bikes for all of the kids. Each kid gets a bike. They're sponsored one-to-one by donors. So one person sponsors one bike to one child. We give the child a picture of their donor in addition to their bike so that they've got this little connection with somebody across the world. And on the back of those pictures is a world map, so we can show the child in, say, Mozambique or Cambodia or Vietnam, you know, that Rick Steves lives here in Edmonds, Mm -hmm. Washington, and they love that connection. For the people who are kind of cynical
0: or questionable about how the money is used and so on, how does that $88 actually get spent?
2: Well, the $88 is about what it costs to buy a bike in the developing world. Sometimes it's a little less, sometimes it's a little more. If it's a little less, it goes in the endowment fund and helps support our volunteer programs. But you buy the bikes locally over there to keep the money in that Area. Yes, yeah. We, we don't ship anything in. None of us sure. take salaries. We don't have an office. We don't spend a penny on advertising. It's all word of mouth. The and... website is great, 88bikes.org. And why the focus on girls? Well, it's it's a new project we just launched. You know, we, we've done this for five years now, 88 Bikes, and we've, we've done projects in uh, 12, 13 countries, including the Navajo Nation here in the United States. And we found that while kids around the world love bikes, that... Girls especially, especially in these locations that they have unique challenges and we wanted to really encourage them and help them. And we also found the girls at that level are usually a little more mature Mm -hmm. and are able to embrace the bike to use it and... uh, Gives them a little more confidence in a male-dominated world. It it does. And, you know, we we endowed an ashram in Bihar, India, which is the poorest, most dangerous state in India, as you well know. And all the girls are rescued from sexual slavery and they told us that the bike helped them feel equal to men. And when we heard that, I think we knew that we wanted to shift our focus and really do that for, for a while. So that's our new project, Project ASHA. So you've got programs in East Africa, East Europe,
0: Latin America, in in the United States, and in Southeast Asia. Personalize it for a moment. Tell me just one story when you delivered a bike and, and you realized this is worth the trouble.
2: When we were in Uganda in a refugee camp, I remember there was one boy there who, like a lot of kids in the region, had lost both of his parents to the fighting with the LRA. And you know, he was both the father and the big brother then to was younger siblings. And when he got the bike, you know, he, he wasn't jumping up and down and, and giddy like the kids in Cambodia, but there was a sense of just, you know, you could tell this bike meant so much to him. And when he put his hands on the handlebars of that bike, you know, he never even looked at us. My brother and I were there and we we're like, wow. You know, you could tell this was just a huge day for him because now suddenly he had a means of not only having fun, but yeah. being able to support his family.
0: You know, a lot of Americans are loving and compassionate people, but they're not very good at understanding the gap between rich and poor. And when you see what an $88 piece of gear can bring a kid in a scary world, that's pretty rewarding.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a fair sum of money. Obviously, it's $88, but at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, huh. it's a very small sum of money. It's a nice dinner out, or it's a new life for a kid in
0: Uganda or something like that. I'm Rick Steves. We've been talking with Dan Austin. His book, Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide, gives us what we need to know to not shower for two weeks and have a life-changing experience. (laughs) And his website, 88bikes.org, explains how we can all change the world one bicycle at a time. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
2: Yes, have lots of fun on your bikes. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye.
3: When I was a
2: child I could see
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find links to our guests and audio archives of each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next week for more Travel
0: with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace and human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org.
1: Rick Steves teaches
0: smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.